to listen an indigenous voice to parliament is a new book by professor melissa Kastan and professor Lynette russell the book explores how the need for a voice to parliament has its roots in what are renowned anthropologists termed the great australian silence and also intentional colonial policies of harassment and I'm glad to say Professor Lynette Russell has just joined us on NITV Radio to shed some light on this new book. Welcome to NITV Radio, Professor Russell. Thank you very much. Time to Listen is a book that actually the first two few words of the, the title, Time to Listen, is a call to action. And uh, it's a book that uh, stems from uh, an ongoing process of uh, deliberate forgetfulness. Yes, that's right. Uh, Melissa and I actually believe that Australian in general have failed to listen to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people over not just generations and decades but in fact over the last 200 plus years and it's formed what the anthropologist Stanner called the Great Australian Silence and our argument is that it's time to rupture that silence by listening and the best way to listen is by having a voice to Parliament. And the calls for voice go very, very far in Australian history because you actually trace it uh, back to the 1800s uh, with uh, the petitions to the king. Petitions, one of them, the most famous one you elicit in the book, is uh, one by William Barrack. And uh, you go to explain also the petitions by William Cooper and uh, other actually leaders of uh, Aboriginal rights who are calling for not only... Um, to be heard, but also to address and redress uh, the mistreatment of uh, First Nations peoples. Absolutely. We, we would argue that there have been a series of consistent, uh, pragmatic approaches by Aboriginal people across, as I said, generations, where they have requested for them to be heard. Um, as we said, we start with William Barak, we talk about the Cooper petition. All of these things are mechanisms by which Aboriginal people were saying, we need to be heard on the issues that relate to us. And we, with Melissa and I, see the voice to Parliament and the Uluru Statement from the Heart as being a logical extension of that very long historical process. Yeah, to put it in perspective again, the William Barak petition, which resulted in uh, the Corandak petition, actually, uh, yes. was in the 1800s. William Cooper, end of the 1800s, beginning of the uh, 20th century, and uh, many other calls, resulted actually in some kind of uh, initial steps towards um, addressing some of the issues, but never anything of value uh, came out of all these petitions and uh, ongoing calls for... I think there's been incremental changes along the way and uh, certainly um, the Corandirk petition resulted in, you know, Aboriginal people at Corandirk being heard um, and, and in some minor ways being accommodated. Cooper's petition, uh, which never actually was delivered, uh, importantly, I think, also at least highlighted the concerns that Aboriginal people had. And as we say in the book, what we're seeing here is a series of significant steps along the road where people, Aboriginal people have been saying our concerns for our people and our concerns about our future need to be heard. And that's where a voice is so crucially important. We can't be heard without a voice. 
we mentioned uh, just going into history again uh, the 19 1800s 1900s and fast forward to the 1990s uh, 80s 1980s and 90s when some progress had been made uh, i can think about uh, the marble case uh, the win uh, about native title and then successive governments end up rolling back some of the achievements that have been um, hailed as groundbreaking and governments just uh, roll them back Exactly. And this is precisely why we are so convinced that the only way to make progress is through a successful referendum which would change the constitution because that can't be rolled back. Once that happens, the voice is there and people are heard. We've seen successive governments over the years choose to roll back. Um, you know, we think of something like John Howard's, uh, you know, basically destruction of, of ATSIC. Now, I'm not suggesting it wasn't without its problems, but certainly... ATSIC was fulfilling a lot of important roles in, uh, in, in terms of how it negotiated on behalf of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Yeah, you mentioned not only ATSIC but also the First People's Congress that was also uh, right. dismantled uh, along the way. That's right. And there were also promises that were never kept. You speak about uh, Bob Hawke's uh, promise to have uh, a treaty by the 1990s and this was never upheld. That's right. Um, that, and again, that was a very emotive, you know, delivered with a lot of fanfare and then absolutely nothing came of it. Ultimately, it did not eventuate and in fact it disappeared, you know, sort of without a whimper. Yeah. So promises are made, never delivered, and uh, the need for a constitutional voice, uh, a constitutional recognition has been uh, made. Uh, actually, you mentioned also a lot of uh, these calls, the uh, the calls also by the people of uh, the the all know people and uh, the Barunga statement in uh, the eighties nineties, which yes. are, yeah, we would see, we see a logical progression. All of those statements, the earlier petitions, the state the Barunga statement, they're all in a sense they're all asking the same thing, and that is to be heard um, and to be heard on the matters that matter and affect Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. In the book, you outline four main, um, actually, uh, I would say, positive aspects of uh, having a voice. You say the voice will uh, ensure constitutional recognition, it will uphold parliamentary supremacy and the efficient functioning of the executive, it fulfills requirements of international law, it reinstates self-determination. Can you elaborate on this for us? Well, the most important thing about the voice is it, it is enshrined in the constitution so in fact yes it does it holds up the supremacy of the government it doesn't in, in, and parliament it doesn't in any way override that um, one of the things that we we say is nobody seems terribly concerned about things like the advisory committee or the roles that are um, formed by something like the productivity commission or indeed the law reform commission both of these offer advice to parliament now what we're thinking is a voice to parliament would offer advice now, obviously, it is up to the government whether they take that advice. It doesn't have any financial, um, it, doesn't, it doesn't issue funding, it can't make policies, it can simply offer advice. Um, the most important thing as well is that we are falling behind in, our, our, in terms of our, right, our human rights, Aboriginal people and Torres Strait Islanders, special rights um, under the UN Declaration, and we need, this needs to be addressed. This is actually a very simple way to make sure that we're all on the same page and that we are, in fact, fulfilling our rights, uh, 
and indeed our international obligations. You mentioned in the book international examples of uh, a better relationship between uh, indigenous people and uh, the colonial settler state. I think we would have to say at the moment the, the relationship is spotty at best and we think that this would be a mechanism for ensuring that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are heard and that their their rights are protected and that's the vital thing here, protecting. Yeah, you mentioned the Canadian example, the New Zealand example, and also some yep. successful, uh, actually, uh, deals signed by First Nations people in uh, the US and the US, some Absolutely. US states and government. Yeah. This is, a, a, to be perfectly frank, this is an uncontroversial proposal. It's really straightforward, and we can we only have to look at, at the, uh, certainly at our Commonwealth neighbours, so New Zealand and Canada, and indeed America, where we have these agreements which have improved the lot of people, not not been controversial at all. In the book you say that uh, the 1967 uh, referendum uh, was a success with a resounding uh, yes vote, but it did not go enough uh, in addressing uh, the various issues. Absolutely. Absolutely. It was the start, and I think it heralded the possibility of real change. But if we, as we do in the in the essay, we, we start to unpick it and we realise, well, not a lot did change. There are some things that, you know, were, un, again, uncontroversial, counting in the census. These are not things that are important. Um, but also, well, of course, terribly important, sorry, but these were uncontroversial things. Uh, but in terms of making changes that improve Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people's educational outcomes, health outcomes, housing outcomes, not so much has changed. And we believe that a voice to parliament will be at least a step in the right direction. We're not for a moment saying it's going to be the be all and end all. It will be a step in the right direction. Because to vote no is not to vote for the status quo. It's actually something much worse. That's uh, the message actually being uh, relayed by... uh most of the uh, mainstream uh, commentators that a uh, voice will just set us back. And uh, you also, one thing that you highlight in the book is that the momentum and the call for a voice actually accelerated after some uh, tragic events like uh, uh, key moments in history, like the Royal Commission to Aboriginal Deaths in Custody and uh, the Bring Them Home report. And, uh, yes. Yeah. We can see uh, we can see the Uluru statement and the extraordinary work of Professor Marcia Langton and Professor Tom Karma in pr- producing the, the the comprehensive report on the uh, Uluru statement of the heart and the importance of having a voice to Parliament. We see that as a, a, again a consequence of a number of royal commissions and rather large and important surveys that have been undertaken, including as you said the separation of children from their families, the stolen sometimes referred to as the Stolen Children Report or the Bringing Them Home Report, I think those things are all leading us in the direction of a voice to Parliament. We see this as the next logical step in our country's history. You also highlight how a voice to Parliament would actually foster meaningful reconciliation, not just uh, some uh, symbolic gesture. It would be actually more meaningful and impactful on uh, yes. the mutual yeah, understanding. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, it, look, as I said, we don't think it necessarily goes far enough. It's actually a very conservative request. Um, I don't even think of it as a political statement. I actually think this is 
a very logical, historically sound, and frankly, it makes good sense just to make this the next consequence in the relationship between Australia's First Nations people and others. There's also a mention on uh, the other side of uh, the debate, those who are opposed to voice to parliament, uh, most uh, prominent amongst them. You highlight Lydia Thorpe, uh, Jacinta Price and uh, Mandine amongst uh, the First Nations, but also now on uh, the conservative side of politics, uh, a lot of voices are out there opposing uh, Indigenous voice to parliament. I think the most regrettable thing in that particularly is the the appalling statements from the conservative side of politics, which are stating, if you don't know, vote no, which I think is really astounding to promote ignorance uh, in preference to knowledge. Uh, it's, it, to me, that's a sh- it's quite shameful. If you don't know, find out. If you don't know, do some research. If you still vote no, fine, that's okay. But to suggest that people should vote no because they don't understand when there is a plethora of information out there is uh, pretty disappointing. Yeah, whereas uh, the First Nations actually uh, opponents like Lydia Thorpe uh, actually think it does not go far enough. That's uh, correct. That's, uh, and I think that's a really important thing to, to recognise that there are many Aboriginal people who do not think this goes far enough. That doesn't necessarily they'll vote, mean they'll vote no. They may actually swing round and vote yes. I'm not presuming that by any means. But I think it's important that people, given the opportunity, to understand what this is about. And for us to recognise that for many people it doesn't go far enough. It's very conservative. And this was also mentioned by some of uh, the actually key players in uh the conversations and dialogues leading up to the Uluru Statement from the Heart. Uh, I can think of uh, someone from Tasmania, Teangi Brown, who said actually a call for voice is uh, one of the uh, least, the, the, the easiest thing that uh, was requested, one, one thing that could be easily achieved. And yet, That's right. there's all this debate going around it. That's right. I mean, I certainly respect other people's opinions and those who don't agree with it. That's, I, I respect that. I don't have a problem with that. I just, at this point in time, my, my, my concerns are without attempting to get this resolved in the positive. Professor Lynette Russell, before I let you go, any closing thoughts? I, I go back to that statement I said, if you don't know, vote no. That's a really regrettable statement, and I would really suggest, if you don't know, please, read and find out there's a lot of information out there and a lot of misinformation out there too so let's hope that people will actually read perhaps what we have written but certainly what other people like Megan Davis and Marcia Langton have written as well and I think your new book Time to Listen An Indigenous Voice to Parliament is uh, one of the best books available out there it's short concise and very well written in a language that's accessible to the general public. Well, thank you very much. We're very pleased to have written it.